Thank you, Jonathan, for prioritizing this topic. So I'll start with, I've been reading a very interesting book lately about um, how God feels about poverty and justice. And it's, uh, it's called the Bible. But in particular, there's a Bible called the Poverty and Justice Bible. And uh, I don't know if anybody's ever read it or, or heard of it, but World Vision basically came up with this and highlighted um, thousands and thousands of scriptures where God's heart for the poor and God's heart for justice shine. And they literally don't, they don't even come close to highlighting every single one because I mean, there's entire books of the Bible that, that you could really highlight. But if you just scroll through this, um, it's almost every single page of the Bible that's highlighted or that's got highlights of God's passion for the poor. So that's just really how I wanted to start this, you know, in that it's not one or two verses. It's not one or two books. It's not uh, three or four examples, but literally saturated throughout this entire book, a uh, collection of 66 books, God's passion for people who live in poverty. So I um, want to share a little bit about my journey, learning to love the poor. And I would say I'm still on that journey. And it's a, it's a lifelong journey because uh, it's it's not a simple, complex issue. It's not even an issue. It's literally uh, an amalgamation of dozens and dozens and dozens of issues and hundreds of issues that contribute to and feed into poverty and create systemic poverty that, that we see today in various parts of the world and all over. And uh, I'm very passionate about what God is doing in Detroit, about the people of Detroit. And my journey to Detroit really started in a very small town, northern Indiana. And when I say small town, I mean, we didn't have a four-way stoplight until I was in middle school. Uh, we weren't poor. We were middle class, probably even upper middle class. My parents were school teachers. And we had what we wanted, what we needed. Um, I didn't grow up with a passion for people in poverty. And um, it, it wasn't until later in life when God got a hold of me that that happened. So I went to Indiana University. I studied business. I was getting ready to go to law school and become a real estate developer. My junior year of college, I decided to move to Australia and study for six, six months overseas. And while I was there, I had this radical encounter with God that changed the whole trajectory of my life. So it was at the age of 22, living in Australia. I have this experience with God where I heard God's voice for the first time in my life. I didn't hear an audible voice. I never have had that privilege, um, but it was just as clear to me as an audible voice. And that set me down a path of my life being reoriented toward the person of Jesus and really discovering who Jesus was and who Jesus is, and not just the character of Jesus, but the ways of Jesus. And my senior year of college back at Indiana University, um, I started thinking about my future and my future plans were to become a real estate developer and go to law school and make a bunch of money. And all of a sudden that no longer seemed very appealing. And what started to be, become very uh, appealing to me was leading people to Jesus. And what God began to speak to me is a passion to become a pastor. I knew I could lead people. I knew I could teach and, and influence people and evangelize. So that led me down a journey to go to Fuller Theological Seminary out in Los Angeles. I met the woman who became my wife, who is absolutely incredible. I married way up. My wife was born in Romania and in Transylvania. I know that that part of the region of the world uh, speaks to some of you, Dracula fans out there. But uh, that's where my wife was born. 
She moved to Detroit when she was two, and she came over here with nothing. And her family was a very much uh, what we would call a self-made family. Was, was neither of my uh, wife's parents were college educated. They ended up starting a junkyard and uh, have done pretty well financially. But her family always had a passion for the poor, probably because of where they came from under communism and a lot of the struggles. And then they were people of faith. But my wife really took that to all new levels when she graduated high school and felt a call into ministry um, and eventually ended up working in a drug and alcohol rehab center. And she'd never done a drug in her life and never even had had a sip of alcohol and uh, really just translated the language of love. And then she ended up working with um, a number of transvestites in, in Santa Monica and people in poverty on Skid Row. And it was through meeting my wife that I really began to develop a heart for the poor. Prior to meeting my wife and, and when I had this encounter with Jesus, I thought I was going to be spending all my life in ministry, ministering to middle class, middle, upper class, and upper class America, because that's who I could relate the most with. And that's who I was having the most influence with. But through seeing my wife's heart for the poor, I began to then read the Bible through more of a, of a worldview of God's care for the poor. And the more I began to read about Jesus, the more I began to see his ways and I began to understand, wow, Jesus really cared a lot about the poor. And, and the scripture has a whole lot to say about the poor. So that led me down a journey to where I actually became obsessed with the poor and uh, you know how we as human beings often have these pendulum swings and we go from one extreme to the other. And for a while, I wanted to live my life as simple as I possibly could. I, I, I almost wanted to move my wife into a, an item, into a cardboard box, not literally, but, but close to it. I ended up buying a Honda Civic that was only $400 and the muffler fell off of it. And it looked like someone took a baseball bat to it and it was rusted out all over. And and I was on this extreme kick of living as simple as possible and giving as much away to the poor. My wife and I moved to Africa for nine months. And um, half of every week I would live with my wife. Who, we lived in Liberia. And she would work in the uh, main city of Monrovia with at-risk women and children. And the other half of the week, I would live in a, a village that was a Muslim village and had no running water. The kids walked over five miles each way to go to school every day, and they had very few animals. And my job was to find out what the community needed and then go get it. So we were able to dig a well. The women were walking a mile and a half every day for water that was about as dark as a cup of coffee. And the children, like I said, were walking 10 miles a day to school and back. And then um, so we were able to build a school, and we were able to get a bunch of animals for the community. And through that, that opened up tremendous amounts of opportunities to witness to the love and power of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and um, gave a lot of platform to, to teach people a lot of Bible in the process. But I didn't use it as a means to an end. Really, I, I believe um, loving the poor is the gospel. I believe the gospel is Jesus, and the gospel is Jesus and his kingdom. And Jesus and his kingdom are a whole lot more than the afterlife. They're experiencing the kingdom right here, right now. And uh, loving the poor is definitely the gospel. Um, but, and I like to share the gospel verbally as well, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so I just want to walk through a few areas of the Bible that clearly speak about God's heart and passion for the poor. 
like I said, it's on almost every page of the entire Bible. But a few examples in the Pentateuch, uh, in Deuteronomy 15, when God's talking about the the new the Israel that uh, the land of Canaan that the Israelites are gonna inhabit. He prepares them for what poverty is going to look like. And he says, if anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites, this is in Deuteronomy 15, 7. If anyone's poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-hearted and freely lend to them whatever they need. And God then eventually goes on to talk about how to care for refugees, how to care for um, uh, immigrants and so on and so forth. And it's extremely open-handed, loving passion for the poor. And Proverbs nineteen seventeen, God says, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and he will reward them for what they have done. Proverbs 21, 13, of course, this is wisdom literature, says whoever shuts their ears to the cry of the poor will also cry out and not be answered. And you see this, this in the prophets over and over and over, how God is dealing with Israel on a number of subjects. And one of the most prevalent subjects that's talked about it in the major and minor prophets is how the Israelites are neglecting God's passion for the poor. One of my favorite passages, which we're all super, super familiar with, is Isaiah 58, right? Because Isaiah 58 talks about fasting. And it talks about fasting in a very different way than I've often heard about fasting in, in uh, Christian circles, because it actually talks about how disgusted God is with Israel's religious practices. He, he's disgusted with them crying out to him. He's disgusted with them trying to worship him. He's disgusted with them praying to him. He's disgusted with them fasting. I mean, all these things that just sound crazy. Like, why would God be disgusted with this? And the reason he's disgusted is because all of their fervor, their spiritual religious fervor is in vain because it's not at all reflected in their heart for justice and their heart for the poor. And one of the things that, that he says, that Isaiah says in uh, Isaiah 58, I'll just read verses six through nine. Um, he says, is, it, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? to loose the chains of the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke is it not to share your food with the hungry and provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the lord will be your rear guard then you will call and the lord will answer you will cry for help and he will say here i am let's shift to the new testament for a few minutes and one of the things that struck me about the life of jesus is the fact that you know God could have just swooped down to this earth and died on a cross and taken care of all of our sins. I mean, he could have done it in a day. He could have done it in a matter of minutes. He could have done it in three days and three nights. He, he didn't have to do it through the, the way that he did it through the life of Jesus, who, who probably walked this earth for around 33 years. And you think about how he did it. He, well, he was born into a, a culture 
that was oppressed, the Jewish people, we all know that. He was born into a time of tremendous oppression, and he was born into a family that, that lived in poverty. And we knew that they, they, we know that they lived in poverty because of the offering that Mary and Joseph offered uh, when it was Mary's time of purification. We see in Leviticus 12, verses uh, 6 through 8, that teaching of you're supposed to offer a lamb, but if you aren't able to afford it and you're living in poverty, then you can offer two pigeons as a temple sacrifice for purification. And that's what Mary and Joseph had to do because of the situation they were in. We also know that they were refugees who had to flee from Israel to Egypt. Um, and so we see a lot of how Jesus's life in and of his, in and of his own experience identifies with people living in poverty. I am convinced when you look at the three years of ministry that Jesus spent on this earth, that he spent the majority of his time with marginalized people. I've heard people argue that, that uh, Peter and James and John were wealthy because they owned a boat. I don't buy it, I, 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 but, but that doesn't matter to me whether they were or they weren't. I don't think they were wealthy. Um, but I definitely believe, even if you take the, the 12 disciples out of it, Jesus spent the majority of his time with the poor and the marginalized. And when I look at how Jesus spent his time, that has a lot to do with how I want to live my life. Because for me, Jesus, again, is the gospel. And we talk a lot as Jesus followers about the character of Jesus, which is so important because the character of Jesus drives the ways of Jesus. And the ways and the works of Jesus have everything to do with not only what he did and how he did it, but when he did it. And I think that, again, him spending the majority of his time with the most marginalized people speaks a lot to me, and not only to me personally, but to one I want to teach others who want to follow the ways of Jesus. We need to look at our time. We need to look at how we're spending our time and who we're spending our time with. And an honest question to, to ask the Holy Spirit, I think, for us regularly is, uh, Father, am I spending a significant amount of my time with the poor, for the poor, and uh, my time, my talents, my resources, my treasures, and so on and so forth? What does it look like? And of course, there's a passage in the Bible that uh, really speaks in a very bold, blunt way, because anytime Jesus is talking about Judgment Day, I think a lot of us perk up. Maybe, uh, you know, if we're tired and we haven't had enough coffee, whenever God starts talking to us about Judgment Day, um, we don't need any caffeine to, to wake up really quick. And Jesus talks about judgment uh, multiple times. And one of the passages that just rocks me every time I read it is Matthew 25, in particular, the teaching about the, the sheep and the goats. And um, Jesus says that he, he's going to split all of humanity into two groups. The, the sheep are going to be on his right. The goat, goats are going to be on his left. And we all know this teaching. We all know what Jesus says here. And um, the, the, the sheep are just as surprised as the goats, right? Because Jesus says, you cared for me when I was sick. You visited me when I was in prison. You fed me when I was hungry. When I was thirsty, you gave something uh, to drink. When I was a stranger, you invited me in. When I was naked, you clothed me, and so on and so forth. And the, the sheep are shocked. They're like, well, when did we see you, Jesus? When did, we, when did we do any of these things for you? And Jesus says, literally, when you did them for the poor, you literally did them for me. I was there. You took care of me. That's how much Jesus identifies with the poor 
and the marginalized in this world, it is as if he is them. And it is as if they are him. He is fully identified with the poor. We know God loves everyone. We see in Jesus's first sermon that he ever preached in his hometown that he quotes from Isaiah, uh, what is it, 61. And he says in Isaiah, well, he just quotes Isaiah 61. And one of the things that he says is, I have come to bring the good news to the poor. And I think that if people who were listening that day who were not poor were really paying attention, they might have been upset with what Isaiah said and what Jesus said, because they may have thought, well, what, you know, didn't Jesus come, didn't the Messiah come to bring the good news to everyone? Um, the answer is yes. But the answer is also, God has a unique, special love for people living in poverty that is, it's unique. And, and, it, and he, he invests even more in the poor than he does in others. Um, and you see that through Jesus's time. You see that even in the New Testament church. And this will be the last passage I, I talk about before I talk about some specifics of how I see poverty playing out in America and urban America and Detroit in particular. But, um, you know, I, I've heard a lot of teaching on Acts chapter two, uh, verses 42, what is it through 46. And what's really interesting in all my experiences of pastors, evangelists, preachers talking about Acts chapter two, 42 through 47, they talk about every element except for verse 45. Um, I, I hardly ever heard verse 45 talked about. And verse 45 says they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. I hear a lot of teaching about devoting themselves to the apostles teaching and to fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. I hear a lot of teaching about signs and wonders. And, um, and it's great. I love all of it. I thank God for that teaching. But it blows my mind how little of a percentage of the time I've heard people teach on the early church in Acts chapter 2, I've heard them talk about selling their possessions and making sure no one among them had need. No one had need among them. And when you think about the church growth model of Acts chapter 2, and it says that people are constantly being added to their number every day, I mean, even the rational mind can kick in and the spiritual mind can realize, well, well, wow, gee, why did so many people start coming to church? <laughs> because they knew that if they were living in poverty, their, their needs were going to be taken care of. And what a powerful demonstration of the gospel uh, to, to make sure that no one had need among you. So, um, you know, really, it really, it hurts me. It grieves my spirit to tell you the truth that when I look at the church in America and, and particularly the Protestant church or the evangelical church, which is where I've spent a lot of my time, I work with uh, believers of, of all different denominations and really human beings of all different walks of life because I'm, a, I'm an evangelist at heart. But it grieves me when I see so many of my evangelical brothers and sisters pay so little attention to the poor. And again, I want to thank you, Jonathan, for making this a, a central part of our time. And so in our closing minutes, I want to just talk about how I see poverty in America. And I really think I'm excited that our next talk is about race, because you really can't separate poverty and race in America, because they are so inter 
intertwined. It is, it is heartbreaking. It's heart-wrenching. It is obvious. It's clear as day. So uh, the next talk on race is going to go perfectly well with what we're talking about here. But I want to talk about education. Uh, education relates a lot to poverty. We, we know that. Um, when you look at predominantly white school districts in America, compared to school districts that serve mostly students of cover. NPR did a great story on this not long ago. $23 billion more is spent on kids in school districts that are predominantly white, okay? That means for every student enrolled in, a, in school in America, the average non-white school district received $2,226 less per student than a predominantly white school district. And so some of us may think, well, that just has to do with taxes and how school districts are paid through property taxes, which I think is a problem in and of itself. But research was done on school districts that were predominantly white and poor. So white, predominantly white schools in poor parts of America, they only received about $130 less per student. Okay, so race is a major factor in education in America. I can tell you about Detroit. Prior to COVID-19, only 14% of kids were able to read at grade level in Detroit, public and charter schools, prior to COVID-19. So imagine what this is gonna look like, kids moved on to the next grade. That gap is gonna widen even quicker. At the school next door to us, where we focus, only 1.2% of the kids were at grade level prior to COVID-19 in reading and in math. Um, at one of the high schools we worked on, when it rained outside, it literally poured on the kids in the building. There were trash cans filled with brown moldy water because the roof had so many holes in it. I didn't believe it until I saw it myself. And I realized if this school building would have been north of eight mile outside of Detroit, this would have been a national news story. But because it was in Detroit, it was just another day. I worked at a school that literally didn't have a math teacher for the entire school year at a high school, Cody High School in Detroit. And things have been getting better, but now they're going to be a whole lot worse because of COVID-19. And so a zip code literally determines a child's destiny in, in America, and especially in urban America and rural poor areas. I want to talk about transportation. Uh, car insurance in Detroit is three to four times higher than the rest of Michigan. And race pays, plays a huge part in that. So you see a lot of people not having cars. But you also see a drastic lack of regional transportation because people in the suburbs have shot down regional busing transportation every time it's come up on the ballot because they're afraid that black people are going to come in and rob their houses. I don't know how someone takes public transportation, gets on a bus, steals your TV, and then gets back on a bus and goes back to Detroit. But somehow in their minds, that's how so many white people in the suburbs think, and they shoot down regional transportation, which means lack of access to nutrition, lack of access to healthcare, lack of access to economic mobility. Um, these are all factors that contribute to COVID-19 taking over Detroit in a big way. And then mass incarceration among African-Americans in our country, where you look at you know, crack cocaine was 400 times more punishable than cocaine until President Obama was able to, to overcome that. You look at the amount of incarceration, the war on drugs, and the war on drugs changed radically when white America started to have the opioid crisis. Then all of a sudden it became a, a health epidemic and we need to help these poor, poor people, which I agree with, we should be treating drug addicts that way. 
but black Americans were not treated that way. The war on drugs was specifically targeted, targeted to mass incarceration and mass incarceration dramatically impacted fatherlessness and economic challenges that creates poverty. It's poverty is systemically created in America and black communities um, and it's undeniable. And um, when you look at what you might call the opportunity index, which the, we often measure success in America by GDP, which is not an effective measure for people who are not able to participate in the labor force and in the economy at the rate that people of, of, of opportunity are given. So the opportunity index measures all these things that I just mentioned. And if you look at COVID-19 right now and where the map of where it has hit America the hardest, and you overlay that map on the opportunity index, it is shocking. It is dramatic. So poverty is literally killing people. They say COVID-19 doesn't discriminate, but it actually does. Because people who have grown up in poverty in America are gonna get harder, hit harder, not only economically, but literally in their lives. So it's 1230, I'm gonna respect my brother who's gonna be bringing the teaching on race and, and hand over my time. But thank you guys again and for praying for the poor and being willing to step in and, and be like Jesus in the way that we love the poor as well.